Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. My dad took me to a concert uh, when I was about nine years old. I mean, I've been to many concerts before, but this one was different um, because the conductor came out and he was cool and handsome and young and he started talking to us in the audience. And then when he started conducting, he was jumping around like a lunatic. And I turned to my dad and I said, oh, I want to be the conductor. He's having so much fun. And that was Leonard Bernstein. And that's Marin Alsop who years after that concert and with the mentorship of Bernstein, did indeed make it to the podium. In 2007, she became the first woman to become the conductor of a major symphony orchestra when she was appointed music director of the Baltimore Symphony. We caught up with her between her stepping down from that position and setting off on a major international tour, conducting in five countries before the end of the year. Marin, it's great to talk to you. This is going to be so much fun because we've talked about communicating in so many different fields, writing, acting, politics, but and music, but we've never talked about communicating from the conductor's podium. So this is a treat to be talking with you. I, let me start with an impertinent question to try to understand more about conducting. Why do we need a conductor? What's the element that the conductor supplies? That's, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. It's a good starting point because a lot of people say, well, what are you doing up there, you know, waving your <laughs> yeah. arms? And what's going on? Right. The, the role of the conductor, I mean, is it's not really understood as well as I would like it to be. The conductor is the messenger of the composer. Mm. It's almost like being a director. You know, you, you you read the script and you have to bring the creator's words to life. For in my case, I have to bring the notes, the creator's notes to life through my musicians to the audience, all in the service of the composer. So it's really, it's acting as a conduit in many ways. And, and perhaps that's so apropos that the term conductor was coined. Because it really, the conductor is the conduit for the musicians to each other, mm-hmm. for the musicians to the audience, for the composer to the musicians, for the composer to the audience. So um, it's really, it's really a multifaceted role. Of course, there are some fundamental things that the conductor is doing and has to do. You know, keep keep the pulse. Um, be responsible for the architecture of the piece. Where is where is it going? Where is it arriving? What's the emotional um, 
disposition of every section. Those things, of course, are, are really important. But I would say on a very fundamental level, I'm acting as a conduit for every, trying to connect everyone. I imagine that there's a, a question as there is in the theater in helping the various parts of the orchestra understand where they are at a given moment in relation to one another. And there's an old joke about the actor who plays a small part in a play as a butler. And somebody says, what's the play about? And he says, well, it's about this butler. (laughs) And it's it's about more than the butler, of course. And the butler has to know if the butler is the string section, has to know what they're doing in the scene at that moment and how they contribute to the whole. That's That's a terrific analogy because that's exactly my my job is to, you know, take in, in rehearsal, in the rehearsal sessions that we have, I will take apart the piece and put it together again so that the musicians are aware of, first of all, who they're with, what role that has in the, in that architectural section of the piece we're doing. Um, whether they have the lead, you know, mm. or whether they're supporting in the supporting role of the butler. Right. And, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things, that's that's an issue also of, of balance and what kind of emotional intention I want them to have. So there's a lot to um, unpack in a rehearsal. How do you do that? How do you um, work on a particular moment uh, with a particular instrument? Do you do you use imagery? Do you use purely technical things like uh, bowing or or the timing of it? Yeah, I think it's clear to use technical terms that brings clarity, but it doesn't bring any kind of lasting impression. Hmm. I'm not predisposed to being a very poetic person, <laughs> yeah. but I try. I try at those moments, you know, because if I say, listen you know, that, that figure needs to be louder and have more crescendo. Or if I say, you need to vomit up that crescendo. See, oh, that's, that's my a, poetic that's, nature. Uh, <laughs> that's, um, that's pretty poetic. That's good. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, of course. That, that image is something that will stay with that musician. Right. So I try to, you know, I try to blend practical, technical discussion also with at least what I'm capable of poetically. Well, that's vivid. That's the vivid part of being clear. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You mentioned the architecture of the piece. How do you see it in your own mind? Do you see it as, as an architectural construction? Do you see it in more emotional terms? You know, I would say it's, it's sort of related to the, what we were just talking about, um, you know, from a technical standpoint, I do a lot of analyses so that I understand the harmonic analysis, you know, harmonically where mm. key wise, where the composer's going, I'll analyze the dynamics. So where's the high point, the loudest point, where's the quietest point. I'll analyze the melody, you know, where is the m- melody, the most, um, I think the most engaged and the most complete. So I can do all of those technical analyses, but 
I'm looking for something that, for me, I call the magic key to open this box. I, I want to understand, you know, now I, I see why every, everything's there, but I want to understand why. What are you looking for? Is there, is there a thematic phrase? What gives it a beginning, a middle, and an end? What, right. what's, the res, what is it, what's resolving at the end? You know, any narrative always has this, you know, beginning, some kind of conflict, mm. some kind of resolution, some kind of moral to the story. This is very important. I think that's what I'm searching for, the moral to the story. That's interesting. Why would someone want to listen to this piece? What could they take away from it? So let me give you an example. If I'm, if I'm listening to a symphony by Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky is, he was a really super neurotic guy. You know, he, he loved, I love reading about these guys. So he was an avid gardener, but he couldn't bring himself to prune anything. So now I understand why his, you know, why he repeats himself so many times. He can't cut anything out. Um, Right, exactly. And, uh, but he loves in, in almost every single one of his pieces, there's this idea of fate, the inescapability of fate. And it manifests in a couple of ways, whether it's a little theme or a motive, or it's something called an appoggiatura. An appoggiatura is a musical term that it's a, a it's it's the it's a note that doesn't fit, and it's leaning. That's the idea. It's leaning, and it requires resolution. Hmm. So for Tchaikovsky, he's on this constant quest for resolution of some kind. And of course, we know now that um, he was, uh, he struggled with his sexual identity. He struggled with so many issues. So we see that the conflict manifests in his music. And then I'm, I feel that I can then try to enable that conflict or that issue to resonate with the people listening and playing the piece. So that's my goal. That's really interesting. You really do, you make it sound like almost what you're saying. It's like a play with with obstacles that have to be overcome to reach a resolution. And you know, when, when you have two directors, right, directing the same play, it can have a hugely different outcome. I mean, or impact, I should say. The outcome's always the same, but... Uh, a hugely different impact because if I focus more on one aspect of the struggle or mm. one aspect of the conflict, that changes the color of the narrative. So it's really the same thing, but instead of words, I'm I'm working with notes. Now, what about you working with different orchestras when you go from Baltimore to Chicago? Are you going to get a different response from them that you have to work with? Does each orchestra have a different personality? Absolutely. Every orchestra has a very distinct personality, a very distinct um, attitude. (laughs) And it's really fascinating because how can a hundred people have a personality? How do they show it? Well, you know, it manifests in different different ways, of course. It can manifest in the quality of the sound that they're mm. making. You know, it can be, so, with some orchestras, I have to work with the sound 
world, you know, like soften it. Maybe, maybe they're living in a very, a very brutal city or under very difficult conditions, you know, and they're used to kind of having an edge to what they do. Mm. And maybe I need on behalf of the composer to soften that sound world. Um, some musicians never look at you, you know, they're afraid <laughs> to connect and, or, or maybe they don't feel they need to connect. That's a reflection of the personality. I saw a master class you were giving on, on, <laughs> on YouTube and you wanted to stop the conductor to give a note and you and the conductor both held up your hand to stop the players. It was a good four seconds before there was silence. <laughs> oh, for sure. There's that gag that I'm sure you know, where the, the first the first violinist steps in one night in an emergency when the conductor can't be there, he's sick. And the next night he comes back and the violinist sitting next to him says, where were you last night? Right, exactly right. Because because they, they the joke is that who, who looked up? You know, when something falls apart, everybody says, okay, who looked up? <laughs> um, so I, I never heard I mean, that. That's funny. Yeah, having a good sense of humor about yourself is really critical to being successful <laughs> as a conductor. Um, but really, it's, in, it's fascinating to me because um, also, you know, the the methodology of, of the work, um, has to change depending where I'm working. If I'm working in Japan, it's a very, very different work ethic Mm -hmm. from say London, you know, London, the orchestras there, they work, um, with very little rehearsal time. They're extremely quick and, uh, very resourceful in, in Germany and Japan, similar, there's a real, there's a real slow trajectory that you follow and it meets with their sort of bio clocks. You know what I mean? They're Mm. used to that. And and you go with that. Um, You know, Baltimore, I would describe Baltimore symphony as very much a reflection of the city of Baltimore. It's not without problems. Um, It's a, it's a tough city. You know, it's a fighting city. Everybody rolls up their sleeves and says, how can I help? Mm. This, the Baltimore Symphony is a scrappy orchestra. And I say that with the, the most admiration and love I can. You know, they're musical and they're going to tell you about it. And they're going to show you how they play. And, and I really feel it's a reflection of the city uh, and the area probably as well. You know, I'm so glad to be talking to a woman conductor, because a woman conductor introduced me to my wife, Arlene. Wow. It was Beatrice Brown. I don't know if you ever came across B. No. She conducted a community orchestra in Connecticut, but went oh, to wow. school with, uh, with Bernstein uh, no at, at Tanglewood. I think she was a student with, uh, with him in Tanglewood. And I don't think he was that encouraging to her as a conductor. You, he was your mentor, wasn't he? He was, you know, that I, my dad, who was um, concertmaster of the New York City Ballet at Lincoln Center, and my mom was a cellist there. So, I, you know, I didn't have much choice about being a musician, for sure. But um, <laughs> I heard you say once they needed a piano player. To... <laughs> that's exactly right. That's why I was born. So um, <laughs> my dad took me to a concert uh, when I was about nine years old. I mean, I've been to many concerts before, but this one was different um, because the conductor came out and he was cool and handsome and young and 
he started talking to us in the audience. And then when he started conducting, he was jumping around like a lunatic. And I turned to my dad and I said, oh, I want to be the conductor. He's having so much fun. And that was Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> yeah, so that's great. That was, he was my inspiration. And then, you know, it was such a, such an incredible uh, joy to become his student later in life. And uh, um, he was, you know, he, he exceeded all of my hopes and expectations. And, and that was really joyous for me. What about being a woman in that in this field? You, you're the first woman to lead a major American orchestra, I believe, right? That's correct. Yeah, a, and, a major full-time U.S. orchestra. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what's it been like getting to that position? Did Bernstein have any other female students? Oh, you know, he had many female students. Oh, that's um, good. He, he actually was probably the... The, the leader in many ways in diversifying um, the field, not just for um, soloists, but for conductors. And as a matter of fact, in the 1960s, he had two different women as his assistants at the New York Philharmonic, and they had to change the bylaws so that women could be allowed to um, perform on stage with the men in the orchestra. There were bylaws that said that. That's, un that's Some hard kind to believe. of laws. Yeah, My no, it's, God. it's true. How does a woman conductor get ahead? Because it's, it's unlike the uh, instrumentalists, you don't audition behind a curtain. You can't. Well, this is, this is a—also, uh, you can't practice your instrument right. every day. Unless you have twenty or forty people come over, um, so how do you practice? So, by the way, do you get do you practice to a recording? How do you do it? Yeah, I mean, two recordings in the mirror, you know, working on different details. You know, you have to be someone that can at least afford a few beers and pizza, so you can get some friends to play for free for you. You know, that's mostly what I did, and eventually, I started my own orchestra. Of, and it was comprised of all my friends. And that's that's how I started to figure out how to become a conductor. You know, I was a very accomplished violinist, but I went from being very accomplished violinist to a beginner conductor. That's what happens <laughs> to each person. Yeah. So it's a the the learning curve is unbelievably steep. And you know, the issue of of not having opportunity, I, I think that this is the greatest um, barrier for for women, for underrepresented people, not having enough opportunities. And I don't just mean one chance. I mean also that the opportunity to fail. I think when you only have one chance, you tend to play it a little bit safe, you know, because you you can't really afford to take too many risks because you could blow it. So I've tried to really think about this idea of um, successful failure. Mm. And I think that, you know, I, I'm sure you would agree with me that I've learned far more from my failures oh, than yeah. I have from my successes. You know, sure. you really figure life out that way and, and your craft. And um, so in 2002, I started a fellowship for women conductors. And, and the idea is really to allow them to fail in a protected environment. 
and encourage them to fail too. Encourage them rather to take risks and try things and not have it be a, a make or break opportunity. How do you provide them the chance to work with musicians? Well, I often take them around to different orchestras where I'm conducting. I ask, could I bring one of my, uh, and the name is the Taki, Taki Fellowship, could I bring one of my Taki Fellows to conduct the opening concert? Or if they come to observe my rehearsals, I'll say to the orchestra, do you mind if she conducts for five minutes? Oh, you know, that's sort of a great. tricky way. And then, I, of course, are they, they generous? Say, wow, she's so great. Oh, that's great. That's great. They must be glad to give somebody a, a chance to practice. They are, and they're and they're thrilled to meet new people. You know, sometimes our worlds become very narrow, very small, and I think it's our responsibility to try to broaden them and and throw the door open for everyone. When we come back from our break, Marin Alsop tells me how her right hand and her left hand have different roles when she conducts and why oboists have to be treated differently from horn players. And she talks about the success of an innovative program she initiated that introduces kids to the joys of classical music. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Aldous Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Marin Alsop. There are so many things about conducting that I never knew until I started looking at you giving <laughs> interviews on YouTube. The, the idea that 
the left hand is talking, uh, it seems a completely different language from what the, left, right. The, the right hand is talking. The right and the left hand are speaking two different languages. T- tell me more about that. Well, this is the, I think this is the biggest challenge for young conductors to, um, to, to work against our symmetrical nature as human <laughs> beings, you know, because we do everything um, in a mirror patterns. Of course, we walk, we, we move our arms. So I work a lot with my students on independence of hands because the right hand holds the baton and shows different patterns in conducting, which are universal and the musicians will all know whether it's in four or in three or in seven or whatever it is. And those are those are um, universal. Everyone needs to know those and be able to articulate those well and clearly. Um, so that has a certain level of of management. But then the left hand is the expressive element. You're adding all the adjectives with your left hand. Mm. You're adding all the superlatives, all of the dynamics all of the emotion, and of course, one's face is is critical as well, but the left hand needs to function independently and not just conduct the same thing as the right hand. I mean, it's both redundant and boring for the musicians. I see one hand or the other uh, when I watch a conductor cueing various sections. It appears to be a warning, you're you're next or you're now. (laughs) Right. I mean, they know that it's in the music, too, but there's somehow, I guess there's an element of organization there. Now's when I want you to to come in. Yeah, they're waiting. They're waiting for confirmation. Yeah. You know, what hand hand, hand does that? I, I, I will cue people in with both hands. It really depends on where they're located in the setup and also what dynamic they come in, what instrument they come in, they're playing. You know, you don't you don't cue an oboe in the same way you cue a French horn. Why? That's interesting. Because they make the sound in entirely different ways. The oboe is a double reed instrument and it's very, it's all done with pressure. It's Mm -hmm. this kind of pressure, you know, squeezing. But if you do that to the horn, they'll miss. The horn is about um, lung capacity and breathing. So you need to give them time to take a breath? Exactly. A time to take a breath, and you don't want to do a, a harsh attack with your hand so because you, you, that's not going to um, encourage them to breathe and breathe through the attack. So you cue them in more gently? More gently, but just definitely not in the same way. It's not so much of an attack. I'm trying to get it into words because they can't see our faces. Yeah. You know, I I would say that it's more, it's like character acting. You know, you have to pretend that you're actually playing that instrument. And if you see the way an oboe makes the sound, they sort of bite down a little bit on the double reed. And it's a squeezing kind of, I mean, I'm I'm exaggerating because I don't play the oboe. But when you play the horn, it's all about blowing as much air as you can through the bore of the instrument. So it's a completely different physique that you need, physical approach. And the conductor can really influence that and can be helpful. 
um, or or not helpful as well, of course. Let me get back for a second to um, being a woman conductor. And we, we, we talked for a minute about how different orchestras have different personalities. As you were coming up, did you find that some orchestras welcomed you as, as the conductor without regard to your sex, or did you find that there was resistance from some? Um, you know, this is, a, this is a difficult question because I don't know what resistance was related to my gender or the fact that I was young or the fact that I'm American. I got so many strikes against me in, <laughs> in this business. Um, you know, all the young conductors, the musicians, they put them through their paces, you know. Um, so that's just part of the, that's part of the um, gauntlet that you have to uh, traverse. Um, I would say that occasionally I thought, <laughs> I wonder if, this person would say that if I were a man, yeah. I doubt it. You know, sometimes just the things they say. Um, but I have to, I have to share with you that I've never felt um, overt discrimination, certainly not from musicians, and I've never t- taken that on either. You know, I think it's really important not to develop a chip on one shoulder. You know, so that you start to say, well, I didn't get that job because I'm a woman or I didn't, you know, they didn't treat me well because I'm a woman. You know, I always say, well, I didn't get that job because I wasn't good enough. How can I be better? You know, I, I try to use every rejection as an opportunity and that served me pretty well. talked about communicating with the orchestra. Part of your job is communicating with the public. For instance, you have the, 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 what I imagine is a problem with every orchestra in the country now is when I see a concert, I see basically two kinds of people. Young people who look like students and older people like me. And the, the people who have kids are at home because a night out on the town is a, an expensive deal. I don't see them so much. How do you get them into the hall? This is an interesting topic. And I want to share with you one little anecdote, which is I was reading a, um, just sort of a, an overview of the 1930 for concert season. And the main worry was that the audience was getting old. <laughs> so I think, okay, I take it back. I think there's no, no, but I, I think, you know, I think we're facing some new challenges in terms of, you know, the digital world and, and a lack of diversity in our, um, in our field and, uh, lack of access points. Oh, I think there are big issues, um, that we can deal with. But I think classical music is a little bit like um, fine wine. You know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, you just want to buzz, you know, and you want it cheap. <laughs> and you don't have a lot of time. And, you know, it's, a, it's an acquired taste. Um, but that said, I don't believe 
it should be an elitist taste. I believe that if kids are exposed and have are given the opportunity, they will embrace classical music in the same way that I did as a kid. And I believe it's every child's right to access art. And, you know, it shouldn't be just for the people that have uh, the resources, the financial resources. It should be for everyone. And, you know, this is one of the main reasons I started the Orchids program in Baltimore in 2008. Yeah, how, um, how does that work? Yeah, we started with 30, 30 first graders in West Baltimore. Um, and, you know, we had no idea what would happen. But today we have over 2,000 kids playing musical instruments. And those Whoa. early kids have now graduated high school, and many have gone on to music um, universities, to uh, careers in music education. Hmm. They want to create programs like Orchids for other kids because it changed their lives. It gave them a safe place. It gave them an outlet, for an emotional outlet, um, a social outlet. You know, and playing an instrument is much more than music. It's much more about possibility. You know, seeing yourself, what, oh, I could play the violin. Okay. I could be a surgeon. Mm. You know, there, you start to envision yourself doing anything. And, uh, I, I have full confidence that these kids are going to be the leaders of tomorrow. That's a wonderful program. How do you recruit the kids we have uh, different hubs around Baltimore, East and West Baltimore. Uh, we have, I think it's seven different hubs and then sort of satellite schools. And after school, they all go to their closest hub for lessons, for orchestra, for bucket band, for choir, um, for all kinds of, for tutoring. You know, we, we feed them healthy meals. Um, and of course, it's fascinating because I asked one um, one of the orchids. I said, "Well, do you ever get um, teased, you know, for being in orchids?" Like, and and he said, "Are you kidding? We tease the people that aren't in orchids. We tell them, come on, what's wrong with you? Get in this program.' So it has the the peer pressure is going from the orchids to the other kids. And you're doing something else worldwide now. I think for the 250th anniversary of Beethoven. Yeah. The Ode to Joy this year. Is, yeah, this is a, um, you know, Beethoven ran up against COVID um, in competition for the year <laughs> 2020. So Beethoven didn't fare that well. Not that he needed a boost. Beethoven's pretty popular. Um, but I had a project plan called the Global Ode to Joy based on Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, of course, which is everybody knows this tune, yeah. you know, and um and it, of course, many of the projects were canceled. Um, my idea behind it was to create new texts that have the same philosophy that Beethoven um, espoused, that, that we as a human race, by unifying and by using joy, can change the world. I mean, I think it's a message that we need so desperately today. So we had nine new texts written um, to be sung uh, as part of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And unfortunately, we we had to either postpone or cancel most of the, the projects, but they're all being rescheduled, and everybody's on board. And we did a um, an online iteration in partnership with Google uh, Arts and YouTube. So 
it actually has ended up reaching far more people mm. than I had ever hoped. Uh, we just uh, did a big global ode to joy in Vienna, um, outdoors with uh, thousands of people attending, and there are more planned for the future. So, you know, Beethoven's message, um, he was someone who really suffered in his lifetime and felt so isolated. And in many ways, he he's a, an appropriate symbol for what we've all gone through during these COVID days. You've had nine new texts written. Why, why nine new texts? Why not one text? Well, Tracy K. Smith did an, uh, a text uh, in English, of course. Um, she's the former U.S. Poet Laureate. And then when I scheduled the project for Baltimore, I really wanted a text that would resonate locally. And a friend of mine who's a rap artist, uh, Wordsmith, he did a text for Baltimore. Ah. And then when we um, when it's going to be done in New Zealand, uh, the the Maori language is so important in the history of New Zealand that we wanted to do a text in that language in South Africa, in Zulu. So in, in Brazil, I did it in Portuguese, a new text in Portuguese. And so it's not just a translation, though. It's also an updating. You know, the... The Schiller poem, which is so beautiful, it, it is of its time, you know, the late 1700s. And that doesn't really resonate with people today. So it's nice to hear the words of Tracy K. Smith, for example, you know, really speaking about our planet and looking out for each other. You know, the things that we're facing today, the, the huge issues. And so that was the idea. That's a wonderful point to use as the resolution of our symphony of a conversation here. Uh, but before we go, we always end our show with seven quick questions. Hope you're okay. they're, they're roughly related to communicating and relating. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I understood the theory of relativity. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I think in a repeated, non-confrontational way and by showing the contrary facts. Right. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Hmm. The strangest question? Uh, let's see. I think someone asked me how I got the name Linda. <laughs> <laughs> I said, hmm, never, never thought about that before. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I, never, I never heard a stranger question. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, think, uh, I think the best way is through laughter. Mm. Mm, that, but that's, how, how do you squeeze in laughter if they're compulsively talking? I know. Well, you know, I used to say to my mom sometimes, you know, you're going to have to take a breath. <laughs> and when I said that, I mean, she, of course, it was very annoying to her, but she'd usually take a breath and I could jump in. <laughs> so you've had practice. Yes. Let's say you're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a true conversation with that person? I try to find out what 
their passion is in life? What what is their what is their real their real raison d'être? You know, as soon as you find out what somebody's really interested in, and hopefully, I can know at least a, a small smidgen of of something about it. You know, if they tell me their uh, uh, their specialty is the theory of relativity, I might be in trouble. Next question: What gives you confidence? No, that's a good question. Um, I think success gives me confidence, and I think being useful, giving back, gives me confidence. Mm. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Uh, that's a hard question. There's so many books that were really formative for me. Um, I'd say the book I remember reading when I was very young um, was Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain. And for me, it was the way that he used music as a, a metaphor for, you know, for existence that brought a new narrative to music for me. So it's the one I remember the most. Well, I think I'm going to remember our conversation <laughs> every time I see a conductor on the podium from now on, because you've given me a lot of insight into the process, and I'm very grateful to you. Oh, well, thank you. It's been my great pleasure. It was uh, for me. Thank you, Myron. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Marin Alsop is now in the middle of an international tour that has her conducting orchestras in Denmark, Austria, Germany, the United States, and Brazil. You can find out more about her plans and her schedule at marinalsop.com. That's M-A-R-I-N-A-L-S-O-P dot com. And you can check out the after-school program for children she founded in Baltimore called Orc Kids at O-R-C-H-K-I-D-S dot org. Orkids dot org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Lee McIntyre. His new book is How to Talk to a Science Denier with valuable lessons gleaned from a headfirst plunge into the alternative worlds that science deniers occupy. I started this whole journey by going to a Flat Earth convention. There were 650 Flat Earthers there. I went there to learn uh, how to talk to science deniers, and I wanted to start with the most elemental ones I could find, because I thought if I could talk to them, then I could talk to climate deniers, who are the ones I'm really worried about. That, you know, then I could talk to anti-vaxxers. Lee McIntyre, next time on Clear and Vivid. 
For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.